And nowadays, it's become a bigger problem because of synthetic opioids. So I was at, uh, at Yale Law School, and they had a presentation, and they had showed a slide of a suitcase that they had busted in a raid. And that suitcase had carfentanil, which is 100 times stronger than fentanyl. Fentanyl is 100 times stronger than heroin. So it's 10,000 times stronger, and then enough in the suitcase to kill everyone in Connecticut six times. So that's 18 million people. Okay. So this kind of stuff is very, very potent. It means you can move small quantities, right? So on my backpack, right, I can have enough drugs in this for all of Vermont and heroin. I mean, for all of Vermont, New Hampshire, you name it, right? Probably Canada. Right? So you can move lots of product in small quantities, and that's why drug dealers are moving to higher potency. They're not actually wanting to kill their customers, right? That's really bad business. Okay. Sometimes they do it on purpose. That's a different thing, I think. For the most part, you want your customers to survive. But what's happened now is because what you do is you have street-level people breaking down a lot of your drugs and packaging them. If there's a thousand-fold variance, it doesn't take a lot to put too much in a baggie to distribute in people overdose. Right. And so that's a big problem. And I'm sure it's a big problem here in New Hampshire and Vermont. Our greatest risk places in Connecticut are places out far from, say, in New Haven or Hartford, where EMS response times are over three minutes. Because when people arrive, right, when EMS arrives, the person's already expired. Right. So one of our big pushes has been to get Narcan out everywhere to everyone, so that every family has Narcan available. So. If overdose is on the rise and people die of drug use, why in the world do people ever do drugs? Right. Well, one of the things we're going to talk about is what is addiction? And addiction has two main pieces. One is when people do drugs and they're addicted to those drugs, it's a reinforcing behavior. It's pleasurable. Okay? People like it. No one is addicted to kale. People are addicted <laughs> to heroin. <laughs> There's also a loss of control in limiting the intake, right? If you give a heroin addict 10 bags, they don't say, you know, I'm going to use one bag. I'm going to share a couple with my friends. I'm going to put a couple on the shelf and just look at it. They could use all 10 bags, right? Again, kale, you don't, there's no loss of control. No one says, I'm just going to keep eating until I turn green. No one does that. One big question is, why do people do drugs to begin with? Right? We just said that people overdose on it. You could lose control of your life. Why in the world do you do it? Well, one issue is to feel good, to have a novel feeling. But my patients typically are in the feel better category. Most of the women that we take care of are victims of violence. And they use drugs to numb their brain, not to experience the violence. There are a lot of young men as well who are doing drugs who are also trying to self medicate Violence can be physical, it can be sexual, there's a lot of emotional abuse, a lot of neglect. And these things people find, you know, hey, when I do drugs, I don't feel lonely, I don't feel hopeless, I don't feel anxious, I don't feel as depressed. Right? One of the big problems in drug addiction treatment is that we tend to say, stop doing drugs. Well, if the drug is the thing that makes you feel better, what have I asked you to do? Stop feeling better, I want you to feel miserable. But that's not a very persuasive argument. Well, not everyone who becomes or who uses drugs becomes a drug addict, right? right? Just not everyone who binge drinks in college winds up to become an alcoholic, right? 
So what is it? So if you guys have ever heard of Brown and Goldstein, they discovered this thing LDL, right? Um, Michael Brown used to always say, everything in the world is on this continuum. Everything, right? Everything has some co combination of your genetics, your biology, and then the environment that you're in. So you could say, wow, what about Down syndrome? That's pretty genetic. It's trisomy 21. It's genetic. I would say no, because maternal age somehow impacts that. That's environment. So everything happens on this. So we'll say that heroin use is genetic, right? Or addiction related to that could be genetic. Alcoholism, there's a genetic trend. But you have to have something in the environment. Just because you have a genetic tendency towards alcoholism doesn't mean that you de facto will become an alcoholic. That'll become very important as we talk about treatment, because a lot of the medications are really focusing on the biology and the genetics. Therapy is focused on the environment, and the two together are what's essential to the So this is a really famous study that was done many, many moons ago, and this is looking at non-drug users. They're probably medical students, I don't know, or a whole couple confessed what you did. But these are brains on uh, the far left. And what you see is, this is a PET scan. These PET scans are looking at dopamine receptors and the response to methylphenidate. Methylphenidate is Ritalin. Right. So before you give people Ritalin, you've got two breakouts of the way the brain looks. Right? You've got this low dopamine receptor and a high dopamine receptor. Well, what happens when you take Ritalin? You guys know? Ritalin increases dopamine. So she gives them Ritalin, and then the question is, so how do you feel? Yeah, some people that say, I, I feel great. I'm really glad I signed up for the study. Can I sign up under another name? <laughs> <laughs> then you've got a group of people that say, I, I, don't, I don't like how this felt. So what's the big difference between the two groups? Right? Well, well, here, you've already got enough dopamine in your brain. You get methylphenidate, you have more dopamine, you have an unpleasant response. It's a dysphoric response. You're in a low dopamine state, we give you methylphenidate, we increase your dopamine, and what happens? You like that. This actually translates into a treatment for cocaine-dependence disulfiram, which blocks dopamine beta-hydroxylase, increasing basal dopamine levels. So if I take a guy with low dopamine, give him disulfiram, make his brain look like this, high dopamine, use his cocaine, he has a dysphoric response. He doesn't like cocaine. Now, the big problem is obviously what? Just stop taking that salt and you can get high, right? So adherence is a problem. But the big piece here is there's a genetic correspondence. These are individuals who don't use drugs. Their brains are different, so their response to the drug is different. Right? The people that like methylphenidate are going to want more. The people that didn't like methylphenidate don't want more. So if you've ever talked to drug users, I used to ask people all the time, so why do you do heroin? Why not crack? Right? And they like, go, oh, I don't know why I feel this crack. I hate crack. Well, part of that is the genetics, right? Just the experience. But experience is not just the way your genes function, right? It's your environment, how you learn to process information. Well, let's think about some basic natural rewards and dopamine levels. So the first caveat here is these are in rats, not people. The NAC is the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is the kind of hot spot in the brain where the pleasure response is located. So if you're really enjoying your meal today, you're going to get a dopamine kick, and the dopamine kick will be in the nucleus accumbens. All right? So 
Um, I also said it's important to say threats because we were not nobody counted people having sex with that's rats. So under food, you see that there's a basal dopamine amount that's being secreted. You eat, boom, threat gets a little boost of dopamine. Well, why why is it important for the brain to have programmed into it a natural reward for food? What was it? What was the dysphoric response? Every time I eat, I feel miserable. Well, I'm not going to want to eat, right? And if I starve to death, how good is that for the survival of the species? Not good, right? Right? So here you have a little reward. Sex is the same thing. Except, although apparently for rats, sex is much better than food, right? You get a much better dopamine response. Right? So well, what's the point of that? Well, right? make more rats. Right? That's important. So we have the same kind of response in our brains. Right? If we look at drugs of abuse, remember, sex and food are down here at the 200 range. You give amphetamine a stimulant, and look at that, a much higher response. Nicotine's better than sex for rats. Look at that. Cocaine, and then varying degrees of, of morphine. Right? Morphine is the final metabolite from heroin acid to morphine. The point is, in your brain, You've got a reward system. The reward system is a basic reward system. It's programmed so that if you eat, your body says that was a good idea, you should continue to eat food, it's important for survival. Sex is pleasurable, right? That's important. You need to propagate the species. Drugs are more pleasurable. Whenever I try to get a drug user to explain to me, a non-drug user, what drugs feel like, they always compare it to sex. It's better than the best sex you've ever had. Right? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> really? I mean, if you had a pill and it was better than the best sex you've ever had in your life, that's pretty marketable, right? I mean, Viagra isn't even sex, right? It's just trying to get you there, right? <laughs> but and Viagra is very popular, right? It's sold on the streets of New York. So in the brain, you've got a system, and that system is inherent, right? It's just the way you are. It's a product of your genes, but also the way you grew up, your environment. When exposed to drugs, those drugs are using pathways that are programmed for basic survival. But they're more rewarding than basic survival, right? So if you've worked with drug users, you've worked with people who sell their, take their lunch money, right, instead of buying food, buy drugs. People engage in sex not for its pleasure, but because they can get money for drugs. And biologically, that makes sense. They're looking for the greater neurobiological world. So when we come in and say, you know, you should just stop that. It's not very persuasive, right? And if you had, like, if you like chocolate cake, I don't know, I like key lime pie. Like, if you put a slice of key lime pie in front of me, you're like, this is the best key lime pie that exists. We had to kill five people to get that pie right in front of brain. I'm not going to say, I'm going to die. I'm going to be like, I'll make that pie. That's my favorite pie. That's like the best pie in the world. This is the greatest pie that's ever been made. I'll make that pie. Now, pie is good, but it's not as good as heroin. So our attempts to get people to stop drug use simply by moralizing it and telling people they should stop is ineffective. But it gets more complicated, because once you start ingesting a substance, that substance changes you. Right? So anybody ever given beta blockers or something like that? 
prolonged beta blocker use. What happens if you're on beta blockers, high doses for a long time, and you stop? You upregulate your beta receptors, right? So people get tachycardic, they get sweaty, they go through a withdrawal from their beta blocker. Well, why is that? Well, their body adapted. So the same is true for antidepressants, the same is true for all kinds of drugs. Your body changes, right? I mean, HIV therapy changes people metabolically, right? Therapy changes people. Drugs that use change people. And one of the ways it does that can be a fundamental, very important way. So here you have a control, which is another PET scan, looking at the top, again looking at dopamine transporter. And then you have a person who's been using methamphetamine for a long time. And then what you can see is that there's a loss of function, right? So you're losing some of these changes in the brain. And what's happening is, over time, people's motor and memory tasks are declining. Now, people with HIV who are methamphetamine abusers, it's, um, it looks like those changes are permanent. I have no idea what's going on. Um, now, permanent changes neurobiologically are a problem, right? Especially if what you're trying to do is get people to remember tasks. Well, if I'm impairing memory, that's a problem. We have a whole therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. And the first word is cognitive. If you impair cognition, you dramatically impair the ability for people to maintain long-term sobriety. Right. I used to take care of some guys who've been drug users for like forever, right? And one of those patients who'd been shot in the head, hit in the head, and everything else uh, was drugs. He could sell as far as parole officer. The guy would have been dementia. He could probably could have cured cancer if he had done drugs. Right? But over time, because also HIV causes neurocognitive decline, his ability to function and remember was drastically impaired toward the end of his life. So the brain changes, and that change can be, for some drugs, permanent. And that appears to be really methamphetamines. It's kind of weird, but I always tell heroin addicts, I'm like, look, at least the good thing here is that the heroin has not destroyed your brain. It's reprogrammed your brain, but it has not destroyed your brain. Methamphetamines can destroy your brain. So it's more than just the drug. We said it's environment, right? So in NA and AA, they talk about people, places, and things, or triggers that will get you to want to use drugs. So is so that song, ooh, that smell? Have you smelled that smell, right? You guys know what that song's about? If it's cooking, don't use right? The smell of heroin cooking gets people to want to use right? You bump into a certain person, that person reminds you of someone you did drugs with. You go to a neighborhood, it reminds you of the drugs you used to do. A long, long, long time ago, before evidence-based treatment, they used to send people off to places to go to these therapeutic communities, and they'd spend years and years there. And there's the one case report of a guy who comes back to New York, after having been away for years, goes to his old neighborhood, and goes into precipitated opiate withdrawal, which is not biologically possible. He hadn't been on opiates for years. But he had a conditioned response. He was in the neighborhood, it reminded him of him, and he started craving opiates. People placed him there. So here's a way to look at this uh, biologically, right? So you show people pictures of cocaine or a cocaine video versus a nature video. Apparently nature videos aren't that stimulating, but you show a cocaine user a cocaine video, and boom, they start begin uh, really thinking about and wanting to use uh, cocaine, right? And this is the little bit of the inferior simulagyrus. And that's really important in um, the way in which you reevaluate situations and decide whether or not to do something. Inhibitory control. Right? 
Then the thing that would light up, but it's not shown here, is the amygdala. The amygdala is involved in emotional decision making. Right? One of the ways to think about it is that substance users are often processing information like adolescents. Right? So adolescents really process information using their amygdala. What feels good? They're not thinking about the long-term consequences. Right? So I would draft 18-year-olds. Right? Because you draft an 18-year-old and you say, take the hill. The 18-year-old says, sure, I can do that. I am God's greatest gift. I will take the hill. Right? You draft a 35-year-old and say, take the hill. What does the 35-year-old say? I could get shot. I'm not going to do that. They've got more inhibitory control. Another way to look at this, um, uh, they did a study showing people both a cocaine film or an erotic film, and you can see that in the controls, they didn't really like the cocaine films very much, but the erotic films, they had a dopamine response. For the cocaine users, cocaine was more important and more exciting than anything else that they could have watched. So here is, again, the power of the drug, and even seeing the drug. They're not doing the drug, but they're looking at someone else doing the drug. And that's so, I mean, it's a stronger trigger than watching anything else. Which is one of the dangerous things when you, when you talk to substance users, you don't ever want to talk about drugs in a glorifying way, right? Because that itself can cause craving. And you'll hear patients will say, look, I don't want to go to the AA meeting or the NA meeting. There are a lot of war stories. People are just talking about the good old days, and all I want to do is use drugs after that, right? An NA meeting is supposed to, you talk about drugs, but then you're going to talk about the consequences of drugs. You're talking about the negative aspects of you don't talk about the, yeah, man, that was awesome, you got so hot, we had a great time. That's not what you're supposed to talk about. In so the big thing here is that you, in your brain, you've got drugs, right, usurping normal circuits. And when that happens, it, it can rewire the system of the relative patient and change its motivational priorities. Right? So this, this slide goes way, way back. This is from Dole and Nicewander. So Nicewander was a psychiatrist. Dole was an endocrinologist at Rockefeller. And Dole had been charged with, from the city of New York, to come up with a cure for the heroin epidemic of that time, the 1950s. And the rock stars of that time were the jazz musicians, people like Miles Davis, John Coltrane. John Coltrane was kicked out of Miles Davis's quintet for being a heroin addict, and that comes back at some time. Billy right? um, Holiday. Died of an overdose right, at the Methadone Clinic on 125th Street named for Billy Holiday. Right? So, that generation of heroin users were at the time, and Nice Wonder was a psychiatrist trying to help heroin addicts at that time. And nobody would ever come to therapy really because they were too busy doing drugs. And so, she partnered with Dole to try and find a way to fix the system. And what Dole postulated back then was that there was some kind of hormonal thing going on, and maybe we could get somebody medication and stabilize the system. So what they figured out um, first was, what's the normal life cycle of a heroin user? So the normal life cycle is this. These little ticks at the bottom are heroin use. And early on, people are getting euphoria. They feel fantastic. But as things go on, you develop tolerance, right? Your brain says, well, we're in this really opiate-rich environment. We're going to make more opiate receptors. We're going to operate that everything. And in so doing, you develop tolerance. And when tolerance happens, all of a sudden, now, I'm just feeling normal. Because my brain thinks that there's so many more opiates out there. I'm filling up, I'm trying to saturate, saturate, saturate. And when I don't have it, now I feel sick. And when people are sick, that's when they engage in the greatest risk. Right? Because when you're sick, your whole motivation is to feel better. I was on the streets of New Haven with an outreach worker, and this woman comes up, she's completely ignoring me. 
she goes up to this the guy uh, who's sitting right next to me and says, um, uh, "Okay, the blowjob for ten bucks." He's got his Yale badge on. Um, he was a new employee. Okay. It's like um, I work for the university. I'm here to help. Like maybe I can change you. She's like five dollars. Okay. I work for the university. I'm here to help. Two dollars. All right. At that point, a car rolls up. She jumps in the car. Well, why is she negotiating down? She's an opioid withdrawal, right? Cost of a bag of heroin is 10 bucks, so she started at 10 bucks. She didn't get the response, she's gonna to go to five and then two, which means that she's gotta do you know, two blowjobs at the $5 rate, or five blowjobs at the $2 rate, just to get one bag to feel better. Right? So she's engaging in risk, and she's engaging in the most risk when someone's sick, right? And as you notice, when people are more willing to share syringes, share cookers, share whatever, in, in the Tanzanian work, we found that people would inject the blood of another heroin addict in hopes that that would stave off withdrawal. You've got to be desperate to inject someone's blood. Finally, at some point, people are hoping that they can actually get back to that euphoria state. They'll double up, triple up their uh, drugs, inject, and overdose. So we've known for a very long time, 1993 seems like a really, really long time ago, right? It's not that long ago, but it feels like right? And Dave Metzger did some work down in Philadelphia and showed off what we now know to be obvious, but back then was in it, not as obvious. And he took people who were out of treatment uh, injectors and people on methadone. And he watched them for 18 months. He had tested the beginning, and this is back when you know there were no fourth generation HIV tests or anything, and there's a lot of false positives. So they had to track him for a year and a half. See who's seroconverting and what's happening. So look, one out of five of the guys who never got into methadone wind up with HIV. Three and a half percent on methadone. Huge difference. So of course one question is, well why isn't that zero, right? Why didn't methadone work for everybody? Well nothing works for everybody, right? But people also were injecting cocaine. Methadone doesn't treat cocaine independently. And people were engaging in risky cycles. So when we talk about medication, when we talk about what is a medication that helps people with an opioid use disorder, right? We're looking at a medication that's going to help do a lot of things. And buprenorphine and methadone have been shown to reduce injection, decrease the psychosocial and medical morbidity, keep people out of the criminal justice system, improve overall health, give people access to HIV therapy and routine therapy. Right? So lots of really, really, really good things. We look here at the corresponding what happens in the brain, right? So you've got an MRI at the top, you've got corresponding PET scans. These are looking at the mu opioid receptor, not the dopamine receptor. And you up here, when there's no opiate in your system, you can see there are absolutely tons and tons and tons. Right down here, this little red dot there, that's the uh, nucleus accumbens. So they kind of round zero for uh, opiates, right? And this is with no buprenorphine in the brain. Tons and tons of opioid receptors available. Two milligrams of buprenorphine, we've cut that by 50%. At 16 milligrams, upwards of 95% of opioid receptors are full. So what does that mean? What I explain to patients is, look, when you give you a medicine, that medicine's gonna park in the parking lot of your brain, right? You've got all these heroin receptors, they're like little parking spaces. When I fill it up and you use heroin, heroin's got nowhere to park. So you're not gonna get high off heroin. But because the parking lot's full, you're not gonna feel sick. And that's what you see here. The little M is for methadone. This is again from Dolan Nice Wander. So you give somebody methadone in the morning and they feel normal and it's 
titrated appropriately. If you use a little H heroin, well, there's a response, but it's blunted because the parking lot's small. <clears throat> so there are three evidence-based treatments that are FDA-approved. Methadone. Methadone in the United States can only be done through an OTP or opioid treatment program. It's efficacious. It's fantastic. I'm a huge fan of methadone. When dosed appropriately. Methadone gets a bad rap. It can be dosed inappropriately in lots of places. Um, I'm totally against for-profit methadone programs that their goal is to keep people on methadone forever. Um, but having created methadone programs on one of the continent, I will tell you, it is a lifesaver. It's a lifesaver. Buprenorphine uh, can be office-based, so all of you who um, are now thankfully nurse practitioners at PAs can also get x waivers and do uh, buprenorphine. There are huge nursing intervention programs of Massachusetts and Connecticut in our system. We use nurses often in the treatment of people with opioid use disorders and buprenorphine. Uh, it's also efficacious, but retention is not as good as methadone. Methadone has the greatest retention of anything I've ever seen in my life. I think it's unbelievable. Why is that? Because you feel miserable if you don't take it. As opposed to the suboxone. Yeah, you can walk out with anyone. <clears throat> now, the psychology is the environment, right? So I've had patients who just felt like, I can't get off the suboxone. And I'm like, that's because you never did therapy. And you, 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 your whole sobriety is based on this pill, and you're afraid if you don't get the pill that your life will fall apart. Um, methadone, when if you just walk off methadone, you feel really bad. So it's really good, particularly people who have an opiate or an stimulant disorder, because what will happen is people will go on a coke binge, and they can stay awake for three days or so, and they'll feel miserable, and they'll come back and engage in treatment. You can get people off methadone very easily by slow tapers, right? It's just getting off of it. Now, Trexone can be done in office-based. There is data that shows that the retention is much less for methadone buprenorphine. I will tell you, we have never, ever had someone be successful with methadone. Right? It's just, doesn't cause neurobiological reward, doesn't make people feel better, they'll do it for a couple months, and then they can walk off. There was recent data presented at Croy, Sandy Springer, and her team, looking at people leaving the prison system. They had their first injection prior to release. Um, and then they continued on. And they did actually relatively well for a year. But you have to remember those are very different populations. You've been incarcerated for years, had no access to drugs, get a shot and are released. It's a different thing than the heroin addict who shows up in my office today who used yesterday. Those are the folks we want to get on that. But if you do work within a criminal justice system, that trust would be definitely. Price point is uh, very different, right? So when we were doing uh, treatment in Tanzania, methadone, $50 a year to treat somebody in Tanzania. Uh, the equivalent of buprenorphine would have been $3,600, and naltrexone would have been almost $8,000. So when you're trying to scale up for an entire country for public health, methadone is very, very cheap and very, very efficacious. What happens if you are that person that just walks off for treatment? Well, if your sole treatment is what, the drug, the medication, and you haven't done any therapy, you go right back to your old behavior, right? This is, I mean, um, we deal with some, uh, some of our folks, uh, when it, you know, I run a big public health clinic, 35,000 patients, right? So we have, a, obesity is one of our biggest problems. And so a lot of patients will wind up getting gastric bypass or whatever. And we'll have patients who will lose weight, and then we'll what? Gain weight again. Now why is that? Well, it's because their behaviors haven't changed, right? The same is true of drug addiction. If you haven't learned new behaviors, you just go back to what you know. 
You go back and hang out with the people you used to hang out with. You go back to the neighborhood you used to go. You go back to the same people, right? It's amazing the number of people I've had to tell folks, like, you should probably delete the drug dealer's phone number on your phone. You should probably get a new number. And it's pretty basic, right? But it's hard to let go of that. For a lot of people, it's a lifeline. But it's not surprising, in a year, 82% of people are right back to injecting. They've watched out the program. So uh, this is the sign here from the methadone, one of the methadone programs in Mandela in Tanzania. So what are the best practices? When we think about, well, how, what should you be doing for drug users in an HIV clinical setting? Well, one, and this has been the big mantra that in programs that PEPFAR has developed, is we always say it should be low threshold. What does that mean? That means it should be very easy to access. Drug dealers do home deliveries, right? It's easy to get drugs. As long as it's easier to get the illegal substance, people are going to opt for that, right? So it needs to be low threshold. Should be rapid access. If you walk in today and want treatment, I should be able to offer you treatment. If you walk in today and I say, could you come back tomorrow at 3 p.m. to get treatment? That's a done conversation. But what I've really said is, you're going to have to go buy dope today in order to make it till tomorrow. And if you survive the next 24 hours, then we can have a conversation. Right? Hopefully, we wouldn't do that with HIV either, right? Your viral loads a million, your CD4 counts 25, you don't have resistance. But you know what? I don't know if I want to treat you right now. Come back tomorrow and think about it. Right, you're kind of shifty, I don't know. We want to make sure that our treatment is culturally appropriate. I'm always amazed that a patient's got candida growing in uh, candida osteo. He's got AIDS, cirrhosis, 67. He still occasionally uses heroin. And um, he gets this discharge plan from the hospital, right? He doesn't read or write in English or Spanish. Not, not very appropriate, right? So one of the things we have to make sure that we do is we are always communicating in a way in which people understand, and we're trying to make sure that the form of therapy meets where people are. So my guys who are really cognitively impaired, we're not putting them in a big CBT program or DBT. We're going to put them in something that's really basic, some 12 steps, get them a sponsor, get them somebody to coach them. Right? We want to make sure it's culturally appropriate and adequate for where people are. If you can do it where you are, that's the best. Right? So one of the things that, we've, that I designed a long time ago is that now, a methadone program, a primary care clinic, an addiction clinic, a mental health clinic, it's all in one place. We call it kind of a, it's like a Walmart. It's one-stop shopping. I tried to explain to a young drug user recently. It's, like, it's kind of like, this is like the Navy SEALs of addiction treatment. If you come here, you can get anything. And if you, if you can't get help here, we're going to have to admit you somewhere. Right? One of the big things that also has to happen is you've got to treat all of the COVID, what we call the medical consequences of addiction, like the HIV, so the programs in Tanzania started as, first and foremost, get methadone to all the injectors in Dar es Salaam that we can as fast as possible. Well, then what happens? You start bringing in all these people who what? Have HIV. All right, Mary, patient number seven, died of fulminant TB and AIDS. Because by the time she got in care, got started with methadone, we identified her diseases and got her on treatment, she had died. Right, because she had waited for too long to get methadone. Started identifying the HIV, start treating the HIV. What we see, we start seeing TB like you would not believe. Right? Case rates are 5,000, 5,000. So the, the TB rates in Tanzania are the highest during the methadone program system. So we had to change infection control. We had to start giving TB meds with the methadone so that people would take it. Right? But you have to treat the consequences of the addiction. Right? I always tell folks it's really a failure on our part if people come in, access methadone, stop doing drugs, and then die a year later from AIDS or cirrhosis or TB. 
Right? It's our responsibility to provide that treatment. So one of the things we do for our huge patient population, I encourage you to do it for your patient population as well, is some basic screening questions. Right? These are published years ago. These are two basic um, standardized screening <coughs> questions. They have to do with alcohol and substance use, right? including prescription opioids. And the big thing here is just trying to find. You've got to cast a broad net. You can never know who really is doing drugs in your system until you start asking the questions, right? There's really there's a lot of fun data on uh, looking at providers and whether or not providers think their patients are doing drugs. And it's always hugely discordant, right? You have no idea, right? The little old lady who comes in and gets value every month that you think is really sweet and has no problem with selling it for a crack habit. No. When we start thinking about therapy, there's a whole huge range of uh, ways in which to think about therapy. And there's a lot of therapy out there. I don't suppose anybody here is a therapist or psychologist. But there you go. Fantastic. <laughs> Good. So I didn't know anything about LCSWs, LMOTs, or anything like that until the last 10 years. And uh, therapists are amazing. All of our clinics have integrated behavioral health. So in the department, you walk down the hallway, and there's somebody from behavioral health. And that's really important. From a, from a non-therapist viewpoint, what's most important is just to remember the basic stages of change and to understand that you may be having a conversation with someone. You may identify that that person has a problem, but that doesn't mean that that person agrees with your assessment. And what you don't want to do is get into a long, drawn-out conflict with the person to say, no, but you're a drug addict. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. That doesn't go anywhere, right? It's like talking to a five-year-old about a cookie, right? It's not going to go anywhere, right? The kid's going to get the cookie, right? The patient's going to get up. Be frustrated that you don't listen, that you're combative. They'll blame you, and they're not going to want to come back, right? So one of the things that's really important is to try and help with some sense and understanding of where people are in the stages of change, to interact with people, if you understand the stages of change, where they are in the stages of change, and help try and motivate people towards the next level. Right? So for that person who completes denial, we contemplate we're always trying to point out exterior circumstances, things in the environment. I know you don't think you have a problem, but DCF took your kids away. You know, you're about to get violated and go back to prison. Uh, it sounds like there could be things in your environment that, that are pointing to a problem, right? So, but again, it's not being combative. If you be combative, you push people away. I always tell people that coming to the doctor should be a lot of fun. If it's not, you don't want to go, right? I never wanted to go to the dentist. I never found the dentist very fun, right? So we do weird things in the clinic. I used to walk around the methadone clinic at Christmas and hand out green and red condoms, right? And then we're just cracking up the patients who just thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world. They used to have a candy thing at the methadone window, which I threw away, and we get like a common jar and stuff. But part of it was just to be silly and fun and entertaining because when you think about it, patients coming in with a drug addiction, aren't, they're not feeling happy. They're ashamed. They feel beat down by the system. People with HIV, even today in this country, are still amazed the number of people who uh, feel an immense amount of stigma. Right? It's just still, it still blows my mind. It's still, I think, horrible. It's in it's like many ways it's like providers' fault because so often things are couched in terms of, well, what did you do to get this? Right? There's always this kind of negative thing associated with harm. Right? So we need to be interactive with patients and help them uh, really have some sense of joy and sense of interaction. We want to make sure that there's some basics of harm reduction. You have to know whether or not it's legal for you to advise or in exchange on those parties. Um, you also need to know the way to get around rules when they're not clearly defined. So in Connecticut, for example, it is illegal for you to do 
syringe exchange, but it is legal for me to give out syringes for the purpose of HIV prevention. Right. Now, if I just have that sharps boxes by, if people put sharps in the sharps boxes, that's fine, that's not exchange, I just distribute. Right? It's nonsense, but it's knowing the law and it's knowing how to do what's right within the context of the law. Um, and then also it becomes really, I think it's really difficult for medical providers sometimes to, un to understand that sometimes they think that they're doing the right thing, but they're enabling behaviors, and enabling behaviors can be really negative and destructive to patients. Uh, so sometimes it's really important to have boundaries, right? To be able to say no, to be able to say no, we don't tolerate this kind of behavior. I had a patient once who was just crying and freaking out, and the nurses didn't know what to do, and they called me, and I walked up, and it was clear that this patient had borderline personality disorder and was trying to manipulate the, the staff into doing something for her. And she thought that crying would be the most effective way. So I went through and I said, when you're ready to behave like an adult, I'm ready to have a conversation with you. And I turned around and walked away. She stopped crying. I said, I'm ready. And the nurses were like, wow. <laughs> right? And so the debrief from that was, She's not crying because she's sad. She's crying to manipulate you. And what she realizes is that I don't care if she cries. I'm a cold, hard, evil person. I, mean, I don't care. I do care, obviously. But I don't care if she's crying because I know why she's crying. She's crying to manipulate. And when I say I'm not going to engage in that manipulative behavior, you can try a different way to manipulate me. Right? That's fine. <laughs> but I don't want to deal with the crying. She changed her tactic. So it becomes really important. Uh, we talked about integrating treatments. Uh, we treat active drug users, so I treat active alcoholics and give them hormonal clues that we treat their FC. It's amazing. I had a guy who nobody wanted to treat. He's on dialysis, on oxygen, continuing to use drugs. And I was like, look, if you'll, tr if you'll take this pill once a day, like I'll, we will, I'll, I'll find a way to do it. He's like, okay. And in the process of it, he was recently complaining to me because he was like, you know what? I stopped smoking because of this FC treatment. I stopped doing drugs. And that had not been a prerequisite. We were, I was treating him even though he was doing everything. But I had stressed with him the importance of, man, you've got to take this pill. And you've got to find a way to take this pill every day. Because it's going to be a shame if we treat you and you're not successful because you missed dose. Because this is expensive and the state paying for this one. And so he realized that the only way he was successful is if he just cut everything out of his life. So now he was mad at me. Cigarettes anymore, it doesn't up for time. But it's amazing if you, you know, sometimes doing the right thing uh, can work out really well. He's actually cured of We encourage everyone to be prescribing naloxone, right? You also you're gonna have to know the rules within your state. So we can prescribe naloxone for parents. That took a lot of legislation because um, Theoretically, in the Medicaid environment, you're not supposed to give meds to people for them to use on other people. That's insurance fraud. Right? So we had to do a lot of lobbying in order to have naloxone paid for by Medicaid for one person with the knowledge that it would be used on someone else. Right? But you just have to know what's available and possible in your environment. Before that, we were still doing naloxone. We were just saying, it's for your own personal use. If you used it on someone else, I don't want to know about it, but it's... Um, it becomes also important to review the guidelines. Uh, we just did last year a big guideline on the treatment of chronic non-malignant pain in people with HIV. And so there's a the, what was published in CIV is just the executive summary, but online is like 100 pages of just in-depth information about what do you do with urine toxicology and what do you do if you have to treat pain and somebody who's on methadone or buprenorphine. So uh, I encourage people to take a look at that. Um, I have been amazed you know, when people say this can't be done. 
Um, this has been done all over the place. So I was in India in November for CDC, and we were out in this Chandrapur, right, out in the middle of nowhere. And we go up to this place, and they're doing directly observed therapy with sofosphere and diclanosphere with buprenorphine to treat everyone's hep C in the program. You want to bet how much those two pill bottles cost? So a whole treatment for hep C is $120 in India. Right now, there's actually, I can't believe this, but uh, for five grand, you can go to Egypt at a resort for the whole time of your hep C treatment and, and includes the med menu. I just couldn't believe that. I was like, can I get you to ship everyone to Egypt in your treatment? That's what we can. So we can do it. Uh, in Tanzania, right, I talked about how we've got adherence support for HIV, TB treatments, uh, integrated into methadone, and then the clinics that we've developed in New Haven that just kind of integrated. And the key theme is one-stop shopping. When you ask people to go even a block away to obtain something, people aren't going to do it unless they think there's value in it. And if you're homeless, you're a heroin addict, you, you don't have a job, you have debt, people are out to get you, we're all saying, going across the street to see a dentist isn't a priority. Going to get a pelvic exam, right? We've been doing a lot of work trying to get our sex workers that send a vet, the patients who are sex workers engaged in care. And it's very difficult. A lot of them are victims of sexual violence, so they don't want anybody messing around with them. Uh, and two, it's been difficult to get them. So we're actually trying to find a way create some private space in the methadone clinic to do this for women so that we can find people. Because what we know is that they probably, a lot of them have HPD and they're developing cervical cancer. And so, again, it's incumbent, I believe, on us to find a way, right? It's, it's ridiculous, you know, step two and the 12 steps is doing the same thing over and over again. So it's a beautiful result. So if we keep expecting a young woman to say, yes, today you keep nagging me about getting a pap smear, so finally I'll walk two blocks and go get one. Right? That's just not going to happen. It's not that important to her. Survival is. Right? So we have to find a way. How do we bring care to the individual? And that's what we're supposed to be doing in healthcare. Right? It's helping to make people better. And the hard part is that oftentimes we get really, really, really focused on the one little part that we know well. HIV care, HIV care, whatever. And we miss the big picture. And then we blame the person when that person doesn't do what we ask them to do. But if you stop and think about, well, what's the motivational priority of the person I'm taking care of, then you might be a little bit more sympathetic, right? I used to, one of the patients that used to just drive me completely nuts, pushed every button I have, was a opioid user, also a benzo user. And she would come in, she's a bit of a she'd come in kind of fake shaking because she wants to get her benzo. She used to drive me crazy until the day I found out the incredible amount of trauma that she could experience. And once I, once, which I used PTSD by proxy, I mean, it's so traumatizing. When I think about what happened to her, um, all of a sudden, like, I was like, oh my goodness. I can completely understand why she wants to be numb. If I had experienced what she experienced, I wouldn't want to be numb. I would not want to wake up and have those images flashing through my mind. So one of the things that we have to be, I feel like, is more sympathetic to the patients that we're caring for. And that can be really difficult when patients are coming in, they're manipulating them, they're trying to get things from you. But when you think about it, not so much as a, this is a really horrible person, but as a, this is a really horrible disease. And this disease has my patient uh, in this strong grip. And I want to help my patient get liberation from that disease. 
that can reframe things for you. And there's always helping you to be a lot more compassionate for people who have driven you completely crazy sometimes. Right? But there's also a lot of humor in the job as well. The patient who tried to get me to write a book once, he gave me the worst story I've ever heard of a walking into narcotic. And I interrupted them. I said, you know, well, that's the worst story I've ever heard in my life. It's so bad. I'm going to leave the room. I will come back and give you a second chance to try and get okay with that. So I got up and I left. And I came back in and he was just laughing. And he was like, God, that was a really bad story. And I was like, yes, that's the worst story I've ever heard. Absolutely. So I assume that people are going to have a copy of, of the slides. And there are a bunch of websites that I listed that just have all kinds of resources. These were all free. Um, both from the pain societies, uh, the PC, PCSS system is for medication assisted treatment. It's uh, US government supported, but has a lot of great resources on it. Buprenorphine training, um, you name it, there's a lot of good stuff. Um, and then this is the guideline that I mentioned for uh, the treatment of chronic non living pain in people with HIV. And this has tons and tons of resources. Um, it should be open access or this is supposed to be. If it's not, email me on with that, thank you for your time. And if you have any questions, feel free to shoot them. Yes, ma'am. So, how do you handle it if you have somebody who's been in recovery for, you know, a decade or more and has a fairly major surgery and is at a different hospital and the providers won't prescribe pain medication? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because of the history. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, so I guess the one question is, what is the conversation with the patient? What's the conversation with the physician? Right. So I have a conversation with some patients, and some patients are like, I don't want it. I'm just too afraid of relapse. I'm too afraid of the life I live. I'm just going to take that program. Right. And so to those patients, they say, Okay, we can do that. If it's not working, you need to let me know. Um, to the physicians, I, because I, I have to deal with this a lot, so one of the things we created was an interdisciplinary pain clinic for, for drug users and people with mental illness. And so one of the things that we had to argue a lot about is we would have people discharged from the hospital, and the hospital, the surgeon wouldn't give any additional pain medicine, they'd be like, oh, he's on methadone, he's fine. He'd be like, no, 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 you have to, no, like, it hurts, right? Because, you know, if he doesn't get 80 of methadone, he feels miserable, but the 80 of methadone, he feels normal. You cut his arm, it's going to hurt. So uh, it took a lot of educating the physicians there and a lot of promises of, look, give them adequate anesthesia and treatment in the hospital, we'll continue and deal with it as an outpatient. And so what we would do is then take it and work with the patient and take them back to where they were. And I preferred that because the hospital, the, the surgeons didn't have enough training in that and so didn't know what to do. And so what, when it was left in their hands, what they would do is either give too much too long or not enough too short. And so when we were able to control it, we could actually work with the patient, see them more often, and get the proper energies in and taper it. And part of that becomes really important is to offer a, a broad variety of options. So in a person who's not on opioids, not on buprenorphine, not on methadone, is getting um, anesthesia and pain, depending on what the surgery is, buprenorphine is a good analgesic. And so that's something that also has a little abuse potential. And so that could be something that is in the middle between I need pain relief, I need something with low relapse potential, something that's easy to get off of. That can be a really nice medication. But we definitely would say you, 
patients should never be denied access to pain medicine because they have a history of addiction, right? That's like saying, you were depressed 10 years ago, so I could never give you raltegravir because it could maybe make you depressed. If you look at the right medication to give you, how much it you? What becomes important is to monitor the patient that's important. So, that's a great question. That's a big deal with the issue we have to deal with. Thanks. Yes, sir. So, question. So, with the, uh, with the treatment, so the purpose of the treatment is for uh, how it helps HIV uh, patients. Is to help them with the pain from the disease, or is it to steer them away from the drug that they're taking prior to what they're taking? With? So, a lot of what happens is HIV, um, getting HIV for drug users is a consequence of something that they had started beforehand. Mm-hmm. The people again injecting drugs or engaging in sex work to pay for the drug. And as a result of that, so the years go by, right? You get HIV really fast. But then it takes longer and you get HIV. We've been a drug user for a while. So then the person shows up in clinic and they're informed, oh, you have HIV. Well, the drug user's response to that can be, well, I want to go forget that. I'm going to go do more drugs, right? So one of the things that we need to do is offer treatment for the main driving problem in that person's life. And for a drug user with HIV, their main problem is not HIV. Right? It's their fundamental issues, the drug problem. So we want to do that root cause. We want to address the, the first uh, first order problem. And so that's giving them a methadone and buprenorphine and the opioid use disorder. And then quickly getting them on the HIV therapy. I've been willing to take more risks for Hep C because it's short course, right? And I can provide a lot of stability for eight or twelve weeks. That I can afford to do. I can't do that for years, right? Have you had patients who, like, say, after you get them off the drugs that they're doing, get hooked on methadone because that since it really does satisfy what they're looking for? So methadone doesn't give a euphoria like heroin does. It doesn't. No. It doesn't involve. Um, it's really, I mean, the, the people that are, if you want to get a high on methadone, people eat Xanax or Conifendate, but they do other drugs, right, to try and get the euphoria. Um, the, the people that get stuck on methadone long term fall into two camps. The first camp is that kind of for profit world. It's the, you're really, really easy. You just come in and you get methadone, and I'm making a lot of money off of you, right? It's nefarious, drives me nuts. I testified in the state of Connecticut to try and prevent a for-profit from opening up because I just, I, I don't like it. Right. Like the profit mode is wrong and it just creates people on The other camp are people who don't engage in therapy. Right? If you have no other way to cope with your addiction and your only way to address that is you know, you're going to be on that phone forever because you have no other way to cope. And if we taper you off, you go back to drug so when I get new patients and I admit them to methadone maintenance, I'll sell them that. I'll say, look, if you don't want to be on methadone forever, you need to engage in therapists. And we've got tons of therapists. Right? There are like 100 licensed therapists in the system. You can find somebody you can talk to. If you do that, you can get off methadone and be successful. And you know, our, our clinic's designed not to, to expand to a billion patients. Right? Our clinic's designed to get people in, get people stable, get people sober, get people up. For um, clinics that are not primarily addiction clinics, but say an HIV clinic, uh, and you have providers that want to start doing um, buprenorphine, what do you see as the minimal 
support services that need to be available in that clinic setting to safely and, and effectively use to learning. So I just, the person who's got the license to do it. That's all you mean. I think that if you can, so I guess what I would say is, um, I would want every system to be like ours, have a little bit of everything, right? But that's not practical, right? And it took us years and years and years and years to get there. But when I started doing Spox and I was a lone ranger, I was doing it by myself, there was no therapist support. The HIV clinic deal had therapists who were really you know, like one and a half the social worker, but that person wasn't doing care, that person was really doing case management. So it was really, let me get you treatment, let me work with the patient, and then get the patient connected to an AA or any group that I knew that was serious. Well. But that's a place to start. I would never counsel people to wait until the system is perfect, because that never happens. Just, you get your feet wet, you start helping some people. What becomes important, and I know, you know, certainly in Vermont, there's like the state, I don't know what it is in Hampshire, but it's certainly limited resource. The greatest ability for people to be to have an opioid disorder addressed is going to be through buprenorphine. It's going to be through everybody doing it. Um, otherwise, I would, I would tell you that it's going to get worse the opioid epidemic. There's just too much money to be made. Just so there's this um, energy being put out about getting. Uh, care done in primary care offices rather than in specialty clinics. Do you you can see that happening in a positive way and still adjust to the to the very poignant things that you've talked about? Yes, I, I think so. I mean I I started doing buprenorphine initially in an HIV clinic at Yale with no support. Right? And I, I left that clinic to take care of this other clinic because the HIV clinic at Yale um, did not want me to expand addiction services in this environment. And so I said, well, fine, I'll go down the street. And I went down the street to what was then just a detox and made a methadone clinic and everything else. Um, but I'm not suggesting that people need to change your career focus and do that. In your current clinical practice, you could very easily adopt four or five buprenorphine patients who would be stable. You have to remember, there's this huge continuum. What I've talked about is, the far right of the bell curve, the people that need a SWAT team, the people that, you know, I, I, I run a very large organization, and there are still some drug addicts. When they show up in some door, I get a call. Kim's over here. I'm, like, right, I'm on my way. Like, <laughs> I'm coming, right? Because if, if Kim's over there, like, this is my one moment to interact with her to try and get her to reconsider her HIV parents. So that's the far right of the bell curve. Most of the people are going to be kind of in this bell curve environment where Drug use is driving things. They've got some mental illness, they've got some things going on, but they're not schizophrenic, they're not bipolar, but they just got straight up open use disorder, and they're gonna do really well. There are a lot of people that could get on Suboxone and not ever need therapy. There'll be a bunch of people who Suboxone with a little bit of therapy. The folks that come into your clinic who you're like, Suboxone and this person needs lithium, two years of DBT and a SWAT team, that's probably not going to be appropriate for your clinical environment, right? And even in our environment, not all our clinics are SWAT team related. We have a bunch of primary care clinics who have very minimal resources, and they're still expected to do your clinics. That's two questions. Thanks for your presentation as well, but I have two questions. One is, how, how do you feel about urine toxins, and do you think we should incorporate them in clinics if we start 
open up the description? Yes, that's my question. Yes, yes, yes sir. Yes. So, um, we do urine toxicology all over the place. And we do it, um, it it's, I don't like the pain scales, right? So it's our fifth vital sign, right? It's just a urine tox. So the addiction clinics, you know everyone gets a urine tox all the time, right? And what we did is we wanted to no normalize it, right? So if you only say, you get a urine tox, you don't have to get a urine tox, you get a urine tox, you don't people start saying you're playing favorites. So in addiction-focused environments, in, in buprenorphine clinics, the expectation is you're going to do a urine tox fail. The same is true of anyone on opioids for any reason. Or on benzodiazepines. Psychiatry makes people do urines all the time. We do urines for people who get opioids. It's just false. Okay, so I can see the non-discriminatory parts, but do you think it's useful? Oh, it's very useful. You think? Oh, yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we, we, we have a 10-drug panel that reflexes to GCMS spec so that it because you can get all kinds of false positives, right? Depending on the immunosity that's reflexed. But it's very informative and it cuts through a lot of the nonsensical conversations. I think you're using coke. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. I can say you've got cocaine metabolized, you're doing coke. So now let's talk about what we need to do about that. Right? It's a totally different conversation. Right? Instead of are you using it, you are now what do we do about it? And so it also helps things be less judgmental. If you come in and use cocaine, it, it, it just really reframes everything. Because I can say something like, okay, you want 90 oxycodone for me. But you have no oxycodone in your urine, and you've got a lot of cocaine. So that tells me that you're not using <laughs> oxycodone for pain, you're using it to fund your coke habit. Right? Of course, people say, no, 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 I just have a lot of pain in our family early, and I was in pain, and that's why I use cocaine. Right? And I'll say that's not creative. Work on your explanations later. And uh, I'm going to say you're not going to get cocaine. I mean, you're, you're not going to get oxycodone. And I'm going to say, look, why don't you enroll in this drug program, and I can reconsider whether or not we treat your pain with opioids. But in the meantime, I can treat your opioid with uh, your pain disorder with a non-opioid in the meantime. And it, it allows the conversation to go differently. You're now, I'm saying, I will reconsider opioids, but you have to engage in drug treatment. Mm. Which is a different conversation, okay. right? We don't want to use it as a punitive thing. Oh, you did this, and so I'm going to beat you up now. We do look at other explanations. We do look at the whole picture, but um, we do give people lots of chances. But it allows for a different way to frame the conversation. Okay, that's helpful. And if there's time for my second question, may I? Um, so, what do you use for non-opioid substance use disorder? Yeah, so alcohol, for alcohol use disorder, naltrexone is the best medication. Yeah. Right, right. It's just, you know. Yeah. For stimulants, uh, disulfiram for cocaine use disorder is fantastic. It's just adherence is a problem. So um, when we were allowed to give disulfiram with methadone for adherence support, it was great. They decreased their cocaine use. I mean, because what happens is like that earlier slide, yeah. you block dopamine beta hydroxylase, you increase the amount of dopamine and it comes if you use cocaine, you have a dysphoric response. Yeah. And so people decrease their cocaine use. That adherence is rushing. Yeah. But you would still prescribe it even though sure. For the, motiv for the motivated person. It's also really good for cocaine craving. If you're one of those lower dopamine people and we give you the disulfiram and you increase your basal dopamine, people have less cocaine craving. So for the person that's really motivated, who's like, I'm really having intense cocaine cocaine genes and all kinds of stuff, I would definitely give them this With a strong warning that if they drink alcohol, they Yeah. That works. And then for methamphetamines, there's no treatment. And with a renewed interest in um, hallucinogens, do you think that's a way to go? 
for the treatment. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of work with ketamine and other things. I, I do have concerns about that. We've been seeing that the synthetic cannabinoids have been causing a lot of psychosis. And so um, once people have a psychotic break, you can't fix that. It's like the, the bone is broken that you can paste together, and you're never going to walk the same. So I have, I have a lot of concern. There's a lot of interest in ketamine at Yale. There's a lot of addiction research. Um, but uh, I get a little concerned about using other substances with high use potential as treatments for other drugs that would be used with high use potential. And ketamine's only available as a research yes. protocol. Okay. I got a long email from one of my patients the other day saying, you need to get me on ketamine. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I'm getting a long I'm so sorry. So we're going to have to wrap it up. Thank you so much.